0: Hello, friends. We are back with episode 67 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric, and I am joined by my excellent co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how's it going today?
1: Going great. hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. We had last week off, uh, but excited to be back this week.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Um recovering from all the eatings and relaxations, and in my case, some uh, Linux audio hacking that I will be implementing in some of my future streams. I, I tend to geek out when I get some spare time. What can I say? That's a geek lifestyle, right? Yep, and as, uh, as Mike, you mentioned, we did we were off last week because our team did take a little break from the highlighting uh, piece of the curations, but we are back, of course, and this week's issue is curated by Colin Fay, one of our longtime contributors and excellent data scientists I think are, and you maybe be hearing his voice on another in- endeavor very soon, teaser, teaser. But as always, he had great help from our Art Weekly team members and contributors for this issue. A common theme that we've had in our recent Art Weekly highlights has been some pretty creative uses of new resources for what I'll call on demand computing infrastructure. That's a lot of big words, but we use that a lot for automation in code and package development. And as I, as being kind of a tech enthusiast, I think it's been a pretty fascinating almost race between many of the top tech companies that you're familiar with in Silicon Valley and beyond, such as say Google, Amazon, Microsoft, on creating easy to use services built upon these hybrids of virtual server technology, containers, and what is becoming really a buzz uh, term lately, serverless architecture. Now, of course, I was a bit skeptical when one of these uh, tech giants, Microsoft, acquired GitHub a couple of years ago. But one thing I can't deny is that one of their biggest advancements is the rollout of GitHub Actions that offer an easy access for open source projects to implement things like continuous integration, continuous delivery, scheduling various processing tasks, and frankly, a lot more. And since Microsoft is, in essence, handling the actual hosting and the infrastructure behind the scenes, you don't really need to worry about potentially messing up your own computer or learning the ins and outs of server deployments to do this all yourself. Now, that's just one of a few reasons that Diego Hernan Gomez has revamped his previous testing setup of his very cool CFFR package to use GitHub Actions as one of his primary engines for his package testing development. And Mike, this definitely has a bit of continuity to something you mentioned in one of our previous episodes recently.
1: Yes, it does, it does. And I I feel like this is definitely a little bit of a follow-up to last week's, our our weekly edition that included a blog post about citing R and R packages in your work. So it's great to see folks continue to push the gas pedal on this important topic for listeners out there who think that github actions you know sounds pretty scary it's it's new so everybody is actually still getting used to it so don't feel any imposter syndrome on this one we're all still still learning together and there's a lot lot to it and a lot that we're still figuring out and like you eric i was somewhat skeptical too when github was acquired by a big tech company uh, just because you know we've all come to know and love GitHub the, the way it was. But so far, I think every enhancement that has been made to GitHub since that acquisition has been incredibly useful for the developer community. And I think the core of what GitHub does really well, they've left alone. Uh, but GitHub Actions is a huge tool, a uh, huge addition to our tool belt as data scientists and software engineers. I would encourage people who have never or maybe have only a handful of times used GitHub Actions for for our projects, to check out the different template actions from the rlib team. And we'll put a link in the show notes, but it's a great place to start. They have a nice GitHub repository on the the different um, action templates that they've put together to accomplish different tasks. So that was really useful for me when I was starting to learn about GitHub Actions. One of Diego's big motivations for using GitHub Actions on his project was that he didn't want to install hundreds or thousands of packages on his own laptop just to run this testing activity that he was doing. So instead, he let GitHub spin up its own cloud instance where we can install all of these packages and then spin it back down um, once the job is finished. And this, this blog post reminded me a little bit of uh, some things that I saw the team at DVC, which I think stands for Data Version Control. Um, that They're a very interesting group that's doing some really cool things in the, the versioning of data and not just code. But I, there's some great YouTube videos that they have out there on using GitHub Actions to actually like generate a ggplot as part of the body of a pull request. So there's all sorts of things that you can do with GitHub Actions in terms of um, automation and working with tools like GitHub Actions, I think forces you to write code that's agnostic to the machine that it's being run on. It makes sure that the code doesn't just work on your own laptop, it, it'll work someplace else. Um, at Catchbrook, we just gave a webinar on, on automating your model retraining with a GitHub Action that plots an ROC curve uh, into the body of the pull request.
0: That's an awesome use case. We're trying similar things in my, um, my work environment too. It saves a bunch of time and it just makes a lot of sense with the tooling we have.
1: Yeah. And it provides some level of auditability and making sure that, you know, anything that you're doing in terms of handling your model, managing your model um, is is consistent with, with reality and not just what you have in your own personal environment on your laptop. I appreciate that. And I would definitely encourage um, any listeners, especially those who are maybe just beginning to incorporate unit tests into their workflow to check out GitHub Actions for running your unit tests. Uh, That's a great place to start. And I believe there's even a function in the use this package that builds the GitHub Actions workflow YAML file pretty much for you Um, so that every time you you push or or, or use a pull request, um, it'll run the workflow in that GitHub Actions and it'll run your tests for you to make sure that they all pass uh, with any changes that you push to production, really enjoyed Diego's blog here. I think there's a, a lot to come in this space. I tend to look at it kind of from the the modeling side. I think model management and model ops is a big, big term right now that people are investing a lot into, and I think there's a, a ton to come in, in this space, and hopefully GitHub Actions uh, will continue to to play a part of it. But I really like the the use case um, of GitHub Actions that Diego took, and I think it just goes to show how widespread the use cases are for, for using GitHub Actions. He had a really creative uh, reason for using it.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed seeing kind of, like you said, the thought process behind why to implement it. But um, there's just so many creative uses for this. So I may mention it on a previous episode, but you can use it for even more than just CICD or testing. I even use it just to run an automated pull of data from the Twitch API. Like I could do that on my Linux server. I know enough to do cron jobs and stuff, but come on, it's right there. Why not just let the, the fine folks at, at Microsoft handle that for me? I just do a little YAML to construct, just run this R script every four times a day. That's it. You know, it, it, and it, it just gives you these possibilities that, yes, you can build this all yourself and it can be a great way to learn when you start building this yourself, but we're busy why not take advantage of these resources, especially for, like I mentioned earlier, open source projects? Um, they're able to leverage GitHub Actions of a very generous amount of compute hours to handle their development needs. So it's there for the taking. Why not? Yes, you, you actually get a surprising amount of free minutes
1: uh, for, for running GitHub Actions, which is, is pretty incredible. It's phenomenal for those of us who, who are trying to leverage them, at least to start, maybe just for use cases. So I, I figured that maybe that that unit testing conversation and how that plays well with GitHub Actions would lead us nicely into our second article uh, today, which was unit testing in our workshop. Um, so this was another fantastic uh, blog post that I believe was put together uh, by Shannon Pilegi. So I don't know if Eric, you want to take this one to start?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Shannon has actually um, blogged about her experiences in previous workshops that actually played a big role here. Before I get to that point, I do want to mention that as stepping back to when I was first learning about not just R itself, but kind of the ins and outs of package development, you know, I would hear phrases like unit testing and continuous integration. And in a lot of these words we just threw out in the last segment, and it can sound pretty foreign and, frankly, even a little frightening to people if they mostly have data science or statistics training. What Shannon does in this workshop, alongside Gordon Shotwell, another key thought leader in this space, is to really motivate the the why you would want to invest in this and making it easier for you as a developer without thinking like you have to make this huge lift into going into incorporating automated testing. And as many things in the development space, um, automated testing in R is standing upon some great foundational pieces that have been produced by say the RStudio team with test that, use this, which we just heard about as well, to get that initial state going, going back into why this is important. That was actually one of my favorite parts of this post and the workshop, is relating it to what we relate to in a typical manual debugging workflow of I'm writing some analysis code, it's doing something. I either get new data or I'm trying a new parameter. Oh, there's a break. Okay, got to change that function, resource that file, rerun it all. Like we're used to this flow, right? And what this what this workshop is, is connecting you with is, That flow is still what you're gonna do in this package development mindset with things like Test That, but it's bringing in some nice automation pieces and just giving you a slightly more optimal way to go through this cycle of development. And it's not like this mysterious, huge lift in a paradigm. It's still the same principles. It's just making it easier for you to do it and making it more intentional from the beginning on which parts of your analytical development for say a package that you have to pay most attention to and hence you want to make sure that as you're making new features or adding new functions or changing some very sophisticated things that you don't break that existing functionality and you don't have to remember in your head of oh oh I need to remove I need to run that particular configuration of parameters or I need to run that particular data set on this this evaluation. This this workshop is showing a great example of a package that she actually developed in a previous workshop. So there's a nod for continuity um, to show from that particular point in 2020, here's what it's like to introduce the, the automated testing framework into the package. And another great part of this was in addition to the actual interactive development, the Q&A section that Shannon put together at the end of this post has some great perspectives on more broader issues like something that I run into on occasion, getting far down a rabbit hole of trying to, in essence, test too much. It needs to be right size to what you think is most important in that development architecture, as well as how you can approach you might call it test-driven development from a practical standpoint. It's a it's a good time for me to read this as I start thinking about, okay, what can I do, say, in my work next year to improve my skill set? One thing that I've always struggled with is having this mindset of this workflow from the very beginning of a project. I have been guilty in the past of just th- putting it off, putting it off until uh oh the team needs me to release it in production. And I'm like, oh, geez, I forgot to do unit tests. So you kind of bolted on after the fact. But it doesn't need to be like just that add-on at the end to appease validation procedures. It is actually helpful for your development. It'll actually make things easier. And I'm talking like somebody who magically does this all the time. Now I still struggle with this. I think having the workshop is a great reminder and frankly, an approachable reminder that it's not as hard as what you may have thought in the past based on either previous resources or previous adventures in this framework. So it's a great time for me to get more familiar with this. And if you if you had to say there are any benefits out of the current state of the world, it's the fact that we're having these workshops virtually and we can watch this after the fact online. And participate even after the fact with with our own explorations of this. And certainly I want to give a quick shout out and congratulations to Shannon, who has just joined the Prostate Cancer Clinical Trials Consortium, which is basically in the same industry I'm in. So kudos to another great R user in life sciences. So congrats, Shannon. I hope you keep the great uh, blog posts coming. So Sounds like you were also very enthusiastic about this workshop content too. Mike, what were your thoughts?
1: Definitely. And it does sound like you have a new neighbor in Shannon. She's an awesome data scientist. Uh, She shares a ton of cool content on her blog, which is called Piping Hot Data, which is also her Twitter handle. Uh, If you you may have seen her tweets before, or if you're going to look her up, that's her Twitter handle as well. Unit testing to me is a thing that at first sounded really exotic. When I had never done it before but once I started writing unit tests it became so obvious of their benefit and why you would use them and they unit tests help me sleep at night They, they really do and I also think that the test that package in R is another great example of I think probably Hadley being really careful and thoughtful around naming conventions the Naming convention for the package is literally test that (laughs) you know What do you want to test and then the the function names are things like expect that or expect true or expect greater than Um, It it makes everything so approachable for new users And I think for folks who haven't used it before you might even be surprised um, Just how easy it is to quickly integrate tests into your workflow my company, uh, lately, we've been working on a project refactoring a really large code base from, from some crazy like base R code with no documentation. And the first thing that I did was to write a bunch of tests for each function um, so that I can ensure that any changes that I make during my refactoring has fidelity to what we expect the code to output, you know, or accept from, from the inputs that are provided by the user uh, within the arguments and making sure that that has fidelity to what the subject matter experts, you know, kind of had in mind for this code to return. And also in this project, I learned for the first time that you can use test that without it being in an R package. So don't feel like you have to, you know, only create an R package and go full-fledged on that to be able to write unit tests. No, that's not the case. If you're just doing an analysis, but you just want to make sure that the, the functions that you wrote uh, are rigorous and your expectations for them are, are true, uh, you can still use the test that package. And instead of, uh, I think dev tools load all, you just have to source the, the, the function at the top of your test script. So that was something that I learned recently, good to know. And again, really appreciate the time that Shannon took to put this blog post together because it makes the talk really accessible because now we get to choose from either the recording on YouTube or the snapshots and step-by-step right up in the blog. So like you said, Eric, I think one of the benefits of, of 2020, 2021, I don't know what year it is now at this point, but is the fact that that we have the ability to access this content after the fact as well.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be re-watching it. I, I watched a snippet of it to prepare for the episode, but there's, frankly, I need to share it with people I work with too, because it's one thing for us as uh, I always struggle how to say this, but there are some of my counterparts in like various companies that we're we're assembling information, assembling best practices, and we want to pass it on to our colleagues to kind of have a unified approach to best practices. Things like documentation that you mentioned. When you don't have documentation, good grief, that's a nightmare to deal with. Then <laughs> they're done that um, to to really up our skill set and frankly minimize the time for rework. So the, having this available is, frankly, fodder for a future seminar that I might talk about testing next year with various folks and share that, hey, it doesn't have to be a mysterious thing. This 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 is readily available, it's tangible, and it will make future you much happier. <laughs> Absolutely. Can, can relate to that very much a hard way in uh, previous adventures that... We don't have time to talk about today. Yes, uh,
1: me, me too. Me too. I had a uh, recent project where th- that one parameter in the function was interval and I asked if it was years or months or days and uh, nobody knew. So that was a, that was a fun one to uh, check out.
0: Yep. Yep. So uh, keep notes, even if it's just for you, you never know when you'll need them. So, <laughs> and um, on that thread of when things go haywire or you might say, debugging that is part of that testing workflow. Um, I've had situations where i it's not just the, um, the code itself. That's only part of the story in, in the debugging adventure. A lot of times, especially when you're constructing a reproducible example or a reprex to share with somebody, it's not just the code. It's the input data going into it or maybe a combination of function parameters that are fundamental to actually diagnosing the problem at hand. And when it gets to, say, debugging complicated workflows, and for example, the business logic of my Shiny apps or modeling paradigms, a technique I still find myself doing is like right before the point of failure, saving out those input objects, maybe it's a data frame, maybe it's a list of stuff, to a custom workspace file, or a set of files, and then I would send those off alongside the code that actually demonstrates the problem to a collaborator to see if they can reproduce the issue and and hopefully help me solve it. Now, in my daily job at an enterprise environment, I have to be very careful how to use, how to share that content using approved means of transfers and all that good stuff. But let's step outside that confine for a second and let's imagine you're working on a large-scale package or maybe a large-scale app with a distributed group around the world in an open source framework for an analysis, a package, or an app, whatever have you. Now, certain platforms exist already to share files and they involve some really big companies, some of which we mentioned earlier. But they often involve setting up accounts for those services, and being up to somebody, maybe yourself, to be like the manual bookkeeper of the contents to make sure that they're uploaded the right way, they're shared with the right people, and that if they were meant to be taken down, they have to take them down. It's up to you as the owner of that content. But for these kind of one-off situations that I'm talking about, like the bugging, where you don't really care about it being stored permanently. It sure would be nice to have kind of a simple mechanism to host and share those files of any sort to help with that debugging exercise. And that's where data scientist Andrew Collier, who is the founder of the Fathom consulting firm, he's uh, actually had a few other um, highlights on this series. He's created a handy R package that once again, harnesses an external API to greatly enhance productivity. And this package is called file bin. And they are a minimalist file sharing service. They're not trying to be Dropbox. They're not trying to be Microsoft's OneDrive or anything like that. It's a utilitarian UI to just post something, share it with somebody and just get out of your day. Well, what's really interesting is that they have an API that doesn't even require authentication. So it's really easy to get up and running and he's, and, um, and he's made it, Andrew's made it even easier to do this with an R package to boot. And I personally think this is a great utility for these one-off, maybe debugging exercises and probably a lot more creative uses. And he's offered some pretty intuitive functions to say, upload a file, get the metadata associated with the file, set an expiration of it so you don't have to worry about deleting it yourself on their servers it'll just delete on its own and a lot more so i think these are very valuable it's a very fit for purpose package but i think it has a lot of great use cases um what kind of things do you think you'd be useful for mike
1: yeah I, i totally agree and i thought i found a lot of potential use cases for this as well especially being somebody who as a consultant, doesn't just belong to one organization where all the files are in, you know, one S3 bucket or, or one, uh, you know, SharePoint location or something like that. I had never heard of the file bin service before, but it, I really think it's an ingenious idea, um, and should get a lot of love from the the cybersecurity crowd, I would think, since it alleviates the problem of forgetting to delete sensitive data. Uh, that you only wanted to share temporarily because it automatically deletes anything that you share after a, a certain period of time. I think it default is six days or something like that. Um, but I, you know, again, I think that we've definitely solved the issue of secur- securely sharing code with GitHub and GitLab and, and other um, you know, resources like that. But I think securely sharing data is still a largely unsolved problem. Um, I think there's a lot of folks who have tried to do it, but I, I'm not sure that that problem has really been solved well yet. So the, the Fathom data team did what we all do when we find a handy API that we love using. They created an R package wrapper for that API. So kudos to them. Um, and I think it's a great introduction for, for those of us in the R ecosystem into this file bin service. One of my favorite things about the R package that they created and about the file bin service was that using R, you can actually create a QR code for your files with this function in the package called bin underscore QR underscore code, which is really, really cool because then it allows somebody with their their smartphone to just take a picture of that QR code and it takes them um, right to the the files that you want to share with them. So you can share that QR code with the specific people that you want to have access to the files. Um, as opposed to having to to share links. Just a lot of different ways to be able to do the same thing, and it's nice to have that option as well. From what I saw, it's not published on CRAN yet, and it's still listed as experimental, um, but this is definitely one package that I can see using on some future projects, you know, especially since I'm always working with clients to transfer files in, in the fastest and most economical and most secure way. Um, so... Definitely hat tip to them for coming up with this package and really glad that it was included in this week's episode.
0: Yeah, and I would definitely check out um, Andrew's blog as he's got some great additional utilities that he and his team have offered that, you know, certainly, again, may have kind of a single purpose, but as you think about enhancing your productivity and a lot of the um, consulting or business-like operations that we often encounter... It's a great source of inspiration and perhaps ways you can update your workflows as well. And I kid you not getting back to the QR codes. We had um, a presentation by another team at, at their job a few months ago, and they are showing this nice shiny app that was producing these plots. And out of the blue, a very important leader asked, Hey, we need QR codes for that. Now, <laughs> admittedly, that was a little bewildering, but hey, now we know they're possible. Maybe they're possible outside of file bin, but <laughs> oh <my laughs> I guess goodness, I have some funny. resources to share after this. Um, but sometimes you, you never know what kind of requests you get when you share cool stuff. But but yeah, as you said, Mike, it goes to show you that when services like this expose an intuitive API, it just makes it so much easier that we can leverage this within the confines of R itself and frankly, almost any other language. But this can definitely be folded into maybe an existing pipeline that's customized for sharing, customized for retrieval. You know, possibilities are kind of endless there. So creativity, that's your only limit. (laughs) Absolutely. I feel like QR codes were here,
1: then they were sort of dead, and then now they're back. Now they're back. Maybe it was the pandemic that brought them back. But interesting that uh, some execs think that they're the the hot new topic now.
0: Yeah, I um, I, I've learned to expect the unexpected with these things. So, but I admit that was that was a new one. So, uh, many stories from the trenches I have. But
1: hey, we've got an R package to do it quick now.
0: <laughs> That's true, absolutely we do. Yep. But what shouldn't be quick is we have a whole bunch of additional content that our weekly issues have that keep you quite busy. And as I mentioned, we were off last week. And oh, by the way, there was an issue last week just about highlights. But one thing that caught my eye from that um, previous release was a really informative blog post from Luis Revilla uh, Sancho, a bioinformatician who did a neat analysis on how bugs are tracked within the R project itself. So we're not talking about just like some random package on GitHub. We're talking about the main big, big fish of all, the R project itself. He did a great... Um, interaction with i believe slack and bug trackers and if you ever want to know just kind of what are the metadata associated with bugs that are reported um, it's a pretty fascinating read so i would definitely check that one out and mike what what caught your attention lately
1: yeah so my friend
0: peter from analithium
1: had a highlight uh, that was how to pick the right hosting option For your Shiny app. This is right up both of our alleys, Eric, so I wanted to shout it out, but he has a great blog post that includes um, this really cool conditionally formatted, like you would see in Excel, uh, red, yellow, green table for all of the different options um, that he's come up with on how you might want to host your Shiny apps, and then uh, things like number of apps you're allowed to deploy pricing concurrency all those things so it's a phenomenal resource to be able to compare all of the different uh options that there are out there for deploying your shiny app so i would highly recommend checking that one out as well i didn't realize that there were no highlights last week we could have just done like a four and a half hour episode to cover <laughs> <laughs> to cover every single uh our weekly our weekly blog post but i think uh I think it's probably better off that, that we skipped last week.
0: Well, I admit I've heard a couple listeners that do what they call like binge podcast listening where just wait to listen to a batch of episodes until they get like maybe a trip or some other, you know, long adventure where they're away from a computer. So anybody that can listen to our weekly highlights for four hours, you get points in our book. And um, <laughs> can, come join us then if you're that enthusiastic. <laughs> <Yes>. that. <laughs> oh, that's um, awesome. I, I remember I used to do that with Linux podcasts when I would take long road trips to um, meet my now wife when we were, you know, studying in separate places. So uh, we, we do what we can to, to ease your uh, travel or, or other amusement for, you know, times like that. So <laughs> we aim to please, as they say. <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: We- uh, as, I, as I said, it's another fantastic issue here. Um, Colin did another amazing job. Um, so check it out where do you check it out oh you should know by now but in case you don't it's rweekly.org we have the main issue right on the home page along with links to every back issue and this handy dandy podcast linked at the top as well and also if you'd like to get involved the team is always looking for more contributors to join our humble little group Um, you can get all details of that on the rweekly github repository we got some great readmes up there for how you can contribute stories. And like I said, um, the steps you can take to become a curator itself. So definitely check that out if you're interested. And Mike, where can people find you if they want to follow up on your adventures as we wrap up 2021? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at Mike underscore
1: Catchbrook, K E T C H B R O O K.
0: Excellent. Definitely give Mike a follow. And I am at the ArtCast. I mostly am a curator of sorts and spreading the the info of many brilliant people and occasionally do my own hacking on live streams that can be crazy to watch, but it's always a good time nonetheless. So that's at twitch.tv slash artpodcast. And certainly give me a shout if you're interested in connecting. Well, that's gonna wrap up our humble little episode 67. We will be back. We have another R-Weekly Highlights next week.